Well, good morning, everyone. As we get started, I want to just kind of take a poll here a little bit. How many of y'all enjoy watching the the singing performance shows on TV, like The Voice? Anybody a fan of those kinds of things? I actually like The Voice more because of the interaction between Blake Shelton and Adam Levine. I'm more entertained by those two guys than any of the singers, I think. But that's one of the more recent, more popular ones. But it, there's been kind of a, a long list of these, hasn't there? How many of y'all remember uh, the one this summer was called The Rising Star, I think? Josh Groban was the host. And that one kind of worked on the concept of somebody singing behind this large curtain and as people would vote for them, that curtain would begin to rise based upon the number of votes. So no pressure there, but uh, that one lasted this summer. Before that was uh, the X Factor, y'all remember that? With Simon Cowell, the man that everybody loves to hate. I think that's the only reason people watched that one was because of him. And, and then, of course, the one that started it all, which was what? American what? American Idol. What a great name. <laughs> it's great because of the inordinate value that we place on entertainment in our culture, whether that's sports celebrities or music celebrities or movie celebrities. It's just amazing how much we idolize them. They have such an uh, uh, inflated place in our society, but it's really not their fault. It's really our fault because we're the ones paying billions upon billions of dollars to be entertained by them. In Paul's day, I don't know that it was too much different. We talked about this uh, when we began our series in Corinthians, they were just as enthralled with entertainment in their culture as I think we are in ours, even though it looked a little different for them. You'll remember uh, the Colosseum? So I put this up there to show you that we have better seating and with some cool light shows, but the concept is essentially the same. What you might find interesting is that public speeches and public debates drew great crowds with and they were wildly popular in Christ's day, I mean in Paul's day. And so, by and large, what was happening during Paul's day, that, that Corinthian scene was analogous to our American Idol. A little different look, but the same basic concept. In fact, winners were determined by the amount of applause that they received by making a good point or giving a, a good speech. As you might expect, everyone was trying to make it to the top, to find their big break. And so in the church, you began to have influential leaders who were rising in popularity because of their polished skills in public speaking. And here's something else you may have noticed if you watch these shows. Very rarely does anybody perform one of their own songs or typically performing songs written by other people, right? But what do the judges say whenever they uh, hear them put a little special nuance on it, they'll say, boy, that's one of my favorite songs, and, and I love the way you made it your own, right? Isn't that a popular comment that the judges make to the singers? Well, you can imagine how much dysfunction this caused in the church when popular preachers began to try and do the very same thing. They had to find a new twist, a little hidden nuance that made their presentation distinct from everyone else the corinthian church was turning into just another competition to see who could be judged by the entertainment of their message who could draw the largest crowds who could gain the greatest applause 
Now, I don't know about you, but as I think about that, I don't know that it's too different than what we see in the church in America today. Because very often we're driven by that consumer mentality as well. Because when we choose our churches based on the entertainment value of their music or the personality of their preacher or the creativity of their programs, we're just following in that Corinthian example. It's really no different. The harder we work to add our own distinctive flair, the further we move away from the heart of the gospel message. You see, the goal of the church is not good entertainment. The goal of the church is to give glory and honor and praise to God. That should be why we're here. In our passage this morning, Paul steps into this environment. He presents himself as an ordinary preacher. And if you remember from last week, he makes sure they understand that they're just an ordinary audience. But they have an extraordinary message of faith alone in Christ alone. He wasn't there to play that typical Corinthian game and entertain his audiences. Or, or even to suggest that he had some new truth that he wanted them to learn. That's not why Paul was there. He was there to help them understand the reality that truth is actually a person. And you don't find truth. Truth finds you. And that's what he wants them to understand. So before we look at that together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we open up your word. We realize that... Uh, we live in a culture that maybe not is all that different than what existed in Corinth with the high value we place on being entertained. We want a special new word. We want to be entertained in a certain way with our music and with the, the, the message that's given. And, and Father, sometimes when we search for those things, we lose the heart of the message, the truth of who you are and what you came to do. And what difference that should make in our life. So, Father, I pray that this morning, that that would be enough. That that message proclaimed throughout history and throughout your word would be enough. Enough to change our lives dramatically. So, Father, help us come to that place this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 1, we'll pick up where we left off last in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So if you're there, I want you follow along with me. It says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let me pause there and just make the point that Paul didn't come to Corinth to impress people with his polished speech or with some new philosophical truth. In fact, what he spoke to them was not even his idea to begin with. Did you catch that in verse 1? Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. <laughs> Paul was there to, to teach them about God's plan, not to pontificate on his own opinion. And look at the simplicity of that message that he brought to them. Verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
what he's saying here is, I want you to know who Christ is. And I want you to understand what he has done. And the impact that that should have on your life. And this simple message had a profound impact on the Christian life at large. Because as you know Paul, he spoke to a lot of issues in the New Testament, didn't he? A number of practical applications. For example, one of the things that he spoke about was marriage. And if you'll remember, when he writes to the Ephesians and speaks about marriage, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Now, if you don't understand who Christ is and what he came to do, that message makes no sense to you, does it? It it undergirds the very heart of what he wants them to understand. The appreciation that, that Christ didn't come with this iron fist of rule. Instead, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He considered the needs of others as more important than his own. So if you want to know what it looks like to be a good husband, then you've got to know who he is and what he came to do. Because husbands, that's the example that we are called to follow. We see the very same thing in how we relate to one another. We know that that Scripture says, greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friend. It says that we are to forgive others as, as Christ has forgiven us. Again, these concepts make no sense unless you know who Christ is and what he came to do. How he laid down his life. Not because we earned it, somehow deserved it because he loves us he died for us even while we were yet sinners he didn't wait till we somehow proved that we deserved it there were no strings attached he gave us grace was unwilling to hold a grudge for the deep offense of our sin now i don't know about you (laughs) But that's not how I naturally relate to people, especially when they've done something hurtful to me or to someone I love. Now, you're all probably much better than I am, but I find that difficult. It's much easier for me to be critical, to be unforgiving, not more forgiving. And if I'm doing what's right in my own eyes and and doing what seems good to me, then I have a wake of broken relationships. I end up hurting people that I really do love. I only know what it looks like to have lifelong relationships when I know who he is and what he came to do. So that that's how I relate to others as well. You see, there's a lot of topics with a lot of practical applications all throughout scripture but they are undergirded with that truth of jesus christ and him crucified that's why paul says i've determined to know nothing else than jesus christ and him crucified because that is the basis of the christian life and every application of how you apply that to yours now look at verse three Says, I was with you in weakness and in fear 
and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. As we think about this particular section of of Paul's uh, passage, we need to probably understand what he's referring to when he talks about having come to them with, with some fear and trembling. There's really nothing within the context of this passage that gives us a clue as to what he might be speaking to. And so for that reason, there's a lot of assumptions that are made by scholars that, that maybe he had a physical illness. And, and I think that's legitimate. Maybe it's the thorn in his side that continues to nag at him uh, and God has chosen not to remove from him. But I think if we look at the book of Acts, we might be able to get some insight as to what specifically he's speaking to. So if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 17. Keep your hand there in Corinthians, but turn to Acts chapter 17. I want to look at a passage of Scripture as Paul spends time in Athens. And this is important is because Athens is the place where Paul was before, just before he came to Corinth. So let's look a little bit at what's happening with Paul in Athens in chapter 17, verse 16. So said, now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arapagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there would spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Isn't that what I said? Something new, some new truth, some new philosophy. That's what they were used to, and that's the environment in which Paul was preaching. And that, that pressure upon him was relentless while he was in Athens. They belittled him and berated him and the one he came to preach. And so from there, Paul goes to Corinth. And what you need to know about that is that Paul goes alone. He shows up in this big New York-style city all by himself. And as is customary, he goes to the synagogues first. And when he goes to the synagogues, he finds the very same thing. His own people listen to what he has to say and then mock him. And not only that, they blaspheme the Messiah he came to teach them about. So do you get a sense of what's happening with Paul? Turn over to chapter 18, verse 9. Say in Acts, chapter 18, verse 9. This is, I think, additional help in helping us understand. And it says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, this is while he was in Corinth, he says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. 
no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. (laughs) I really appreciate this passage because it shows us that Paul is human, that he was having a struggle much like you and I would probably have. He goes to Corinth alone. He's probably exhausted, I think very discouraged, and he's proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. Keep in mind that he is proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the one who was crucified by the very rulers that they deified, that they considered as divine. Do you capture that? Let me, let me put it in perspective. That'd be like you going into Syria and preaching Jesus to Islamic extremists. Now do you understand fear and trembling? That was the environment in which Paul was speaking. And to make matters worse, Paul was unwilling to play the Corinthian game. Because you remember what we've talked about with that Corinthian game. It really didn't matter too much what you had to say, but it mattered really how you said it. And as long as you said it in an entertaining way, as long as you made a good case, then they would overlook any of the, the details of your argument. So at least if Paul could keep them entertained, then, then they wouldn't condemn him so much for what he had to say. But Paul didn't have a popular message or a polished presentation. But what he did have, according to verse 4, was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. If you're not there, go back to 1 Corinthians because I want you to see this. Since he came with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, why? So that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The word Paul uses for demonstration here in the original language is really interesting. It's a word that means to make a compelling conclusion to a well-argued case. Now, isn't that an interesting word for a man who's already said he wasn't a good speaker? And so, if Paul's not all that eloquent, what was this compelling conclusion? What is he referring to? Well, I want to suggest to you that the convincing argument of Paul's message was the Spirit's power to transform the lives of those who believe. The compelling conclusion was a changed life. That way people were not looking at Paul with his persuasive words. They were looking at God and his power to change lives. This goes back to the point Jason made a few weeks ago when he was talking about smoke signals and how we use them in communication. But they're inadequate to communicate philosophical thoughts, right? They can give basic directions or basic instructions, but they are insufficient in trying to explain how the world came into being. (laughs) You just can't do that with smoke signals. Well, in the same way, you cannot communicate the heart of the gospel In words alone. You have to demonstrate the power of the Spirit in a changed life. That's the compelling argument to the message of the cross. And that's why salvation is not found in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, the basis of my faith 
is not an intellectual pursuit because I can know about Christ. I know there are people who grow up in the church and they have every Sunday school answer to every question that you have about the Bible. But the question is, do I understand who Christ is? And listen to this, what he did for me. For me. Do I come to the cross hoping that God can change my life? That he can forgive my sins? Please don't believe it just because I say it. Don't believe it because your parents say it. Don't believe it because that's what your friends say. Believe it because you need it. And you cannot live life without it. That's why you believe. Believe in the power of God to change your life. That he will do what he said he would do. That's why you believe. Now look at verse 6 in our passage. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen or ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says that the wisdom he proclaims is not of this age. It's not of the rulers of this age. It's a, it's a wisdom predestined by God before the ages to our glory. Now there's a lot in that statement and I want you to Hang with me as we walk through this together. I don't want you to miss it. I want to remind you that, that Paul has already disclosed that message that he came to proclaim, right? Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said he was determined to know nothing else but that message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And yet here he clarifies that, that this is not new information. Remember, it's the testimony of God. And he goes on to explain here in verse 7, look at it, that it's a testimony of God predestined before the ages. And he clarifies, it certainly didn't begin with the, the rulers of this age who would have definitely been prized by their intellectual pursuits. The message of the gospel was actually determined by God before the world began before the ages so what that tells us listen to this god created humanity with the knowledge of our rebellion and a plan for our redemption before the world began do you get that it's hugely significant didn't have a plan a and and then when we messed up in the garden say 
oh gosh, that didn't work out like I thought it would. Now what am I going to do? That's not what he did. God created mankind with a plan to redeem mankind. And it has always and forever been centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. I just want you to think about that personally for a minute. God created you with a knowledge of your rebellion, with a plan for your redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Is that not love? To know the offense of our sin, but to provide a way to be restored in our relationship with him? Verse 7 says that the reason that he did it was for our glory. Did you notice that? Look at verse 7 again. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages, and look, to our glory. I believe that what he's talking about here is our resurrection. And the reason I believe that that's the case is because what he goes on to say when he says that, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. His resurrection is what makes our resurrection possible. If he doesn't rise from the grave, we remain dead in our sin. That's the reality. We are glorified when we are raised to be with him. When our relationship that we were ultimately created for is finally and completely restored. What Paul is saying is that God created us with that goal in mind. And when he talks about the wisdom of God in a mystery, I want you to understand that he's not talking about some secret code that we can't uh, decipher. What he's talking about here is something that God has made known. In fact, you may remember from from Romans, when Paul writes to the Romans, he says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen through what he has made. We see the message of the gospel in something as simple as the fact of a seed having to die before it can sprout new life. That's a law of nature that speaks of the message of the cross. The entire narrative of the Bible, from start to finish, reveals to us the reality of God's love, the judgment of sin, and the desire he has to be in a relationship with us. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and you will find the plan of salvation. A plan that is revealed in increasing clarity culminating ultimately in the person and work of Christ. The question never was if God would do something. The question was, how would he do it? You understand that? There was never a question of if God would do something. The only question was, how would he do it? In fact, that's how the Old Testament saints were saved. Their faith was based on the belief that God would provide a way. That he would restore that relationship they were created for with God. They trusted that he would make a way 
even though they may not fully understand what that way looks like. But they believed in faith that he would make a way. And here's something that we don't need to overlook. (laughs) We know what it looks like. We know the way that was made. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. That was the plan of God before the world began. When Paul speaks of God's mystery, what he's saying is that it's a truth of God that can't be discovered with some human logic. As if we can credit ourselves from having built our tower tall enough to reach him. It has to be revealed by God and believed by faith. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. The point is this, truth is a person. And you don't find truth. Truth finds you. The truth of God is revealed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is God's plan, predestined before the ages to our glory. Salvation is a decision based on trust and love, not analysis and debate. And it remains hidden only to those who are blinded by unbelief. That's why Paul pulls in that message from the prophet Isaiah there in verse 9. Look at that again. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He's saying here, you can't see with your eyes. You can't hear with your ears until your heart is opened by faith. Those who love God are the ones who understand the things that God has prepared for them before the world began. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's always been the plan. There's an interesting story about a man by the name of Adoram Judson. You may recognize his name. He was really the first uh, Protestant missionary sent from the United States to minister in what uh, was Southeast Asia is where he was for, for quite some time. Upon his arrival to the States on one occasion, he was uh, asked to speak to a, a missionary audience And being a very gifted speaker, he would have relished this opportunity earlier in his life. But as he matured, he was less inclined to entertain his audience. And so when he came to them, this is something that he said. He said, you know, you asked me to speak so that you can hear about my adventures on the high seas. To learn of the strange things in the Orient. And the interesting stories of my life. Instead, I must offer you the greatest story I know. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, I'm sorry, if if that's not enough, it's just the only story that I intend to tell. I think it's interesting to see how the older we get, it's the only story that matters to us, right, Miss Hardy? The only story that matters. I know for me, when I was a young Christian and uh, growing up the 
thing that I wanted to learn as a new believer was all the deep theological truths so that I could impress people with my vast spiritual knowledge. But I want to tell you something. You know what I want to learn today more than anything else? I want to know Jesus. I don't want to make him known. It's really that simple. And I'm sorry if that doesn't impress you. But that's all I know. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that truth pervades every aspect of our being. In fact, Terry and I have talked recently about how significant it is as we raise our kids. I remember when Graham was first born. And like most young parents, we had all kinds of hopes and dreams, right? I was certain he was going to be a professional baseball player someday. He could care less about baseball. <laughs> but, you know, we thought about what he might do in school or what job he might have or what, what money he might make. But as he grows older, our goals are much simpler. We just want him and his brother to know Jesus and to make him known. It's that simple. And, and all of what we do is to help them grow in that as an understanding that we're on the same path. We want to have a friendship with our boys for a lifetime because of the shared commitment of knowing Jesus and making him known. And if that's really our goal, there's an important truth that this passage teaches us that we don't need to overlook. It teaches us that our greatest impact will always be in the life we live, not in the words we speak. People don't see the power of God by our persuasive words. They see the power of God in your changed life. And this is particularly true when it comes to our kids, <laughs> Because they are very perceptive in seeing the disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live our life. And we have to be careful as parents because we can have just the opposite effect. Because we can turn our kids away from following Christ when they hear us say one thing, but then turn around and treat their mom with disrespect and disregard. It matters a whole lot more how you live your life than what you have to say. With that in mind, let me close with this. Truth is a person. You don't find truth. Truth finds you. And if you really want to grow in your spiritual understanding, if you really want to know how God's truth applies to your life, then be committed to growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Learn how to apply that message of who he is and what he has done to how you live as a husband and as a wife, as a friend, as a son, as a daughter. Look to his example and then look to follow that example, but not in your own strength. Be strengthened by the Spirit of God, which is the power of God to change your life, to be conformed to the image of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see that? Last week, I gave you a little take-home that I wanted you to use to apply the message. You remember the three letters? B-I-O, quiz time. Who can tell me what B stands for? Be with God daily. How can you have a trusting relationship with anybody much less God, 
unless you spend time. What's the I? What is it? I heard it in community weekly. In other words, you were not, it's not good for man to be alone. God made that clear right in the beginning in Genesis. We were created for community. I believe that's part of being created in his image, which is a perfect fellowship of the Trinity. And, and so how arrogant of us to try to navigate life on our own when he created us for community. So be in community, not just Sunday, but during the week. B-I, what's the last one? On mission. How often? 24-7, which tells us we are called to live a life that doesn't get segregated. So this is my work life, and, and this is my home life, and, and this is my church life. And I'll be on mission on one of these, but not all of them. That is completely unbiblical. Because you are not a segregated being. Neither is God. And you were created in his image. So live an unsegregated life where you're on mission 24-7. Determined to know nothing else but what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, I kind of surprised you there. Let's do it again. Determined to know nothing else but what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we need to just go back to the very heart of the message of your word and to realize that all the details that surround the application of your truth center on that one truth of who you are and what you came to do. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Father, in our world where we are so easily entertained, I pray that we can come to a place where we are satisfied with that one truth that it's enough to know jesus christ and him crucified why because it is the power of god to change a life to be conformed to the image of christ and may that be our heart's desire above all else father thank you for that reminder this morning and for the power of your word to change our lives we pray this in your name amen have a great day